The scripture for tonight is Mark 9, 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this raising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So it was interesting to, well, always, <clears throat> I can't remember the last time we had a, oh, uh, Sunday fell on Halloween, Reformation Day, but uh, um, yeah, it's interesting to be worshiping God together. I don't, I don't see anybody in costume. Nobody's wearing a costume. I see, I, I dressed up as a preacher, but none of you guys did anything, so I guess I'm more festive than all of you. Um, so I suppose we'll go with Reformation Day. We celebrate Reformation Day at the same time. Last night I was at the Aaron's house and um, <clears throat> for the Reformation party, and they had a, a documentary on. Sounds like a great bash, doesn't it? Party and a documentary rolling in the background. No, it was great. It was, it was fun. Um, there was a schnitzel there and sauerkraut. It was wonderful. Um, and this documentary was, was, was helpful. Um, one of the things that the church, the Catholic Church, as Luther was confronting it, um, said to him was, you know, who are you? Who are you, you singular man, to question kind of the authority of our teaching? And, and one of the points that they made in this documentary the man was making was that in a very communal culture, you know, it wasn't like American culture, it was communal, this would, this would have been intensely, you know, attempting for Luther to side with the Catholic Church. How, you know, how could I find myself in a situation 
where I would go against what is collectively being taught here and break community. And his response after giving it some thought was, well, this is what the word of God says. This is where I will stand. And that's one of the things that we celebrate about the Reformation. If you don't know much about it, it's really the, the changing where church did no longer had authority over the Word of God, but the Word of God had authority over the church. That's maybe one of the key things that the Reformation fought for and gave us. And as we think about that, we are a church, we call ourselves a Reformed Church because we do hold the Bible in utmost authority because it is God's Word. And it has authority over me, it has authority over the elders, it has authority over this church, and it has authority over every single church and every single tradition. The Word of God is God's Word, and it is His authority, and it is the authority. And we can base our lives upon it, and we can preach from it, and that's why we gather here. We don't gather. You guys don't come here to hear what I have to say. You come here to hear what God has to say. I'm convinced of that. And that's why we come. That's why we should go to church. To worship God is to know Him. To worship and to know Him is to, uh, is to sur- submit and surrender to what He has said. So we do praise God for the Reformation. We should celebrate that. We should celebrate the, the courage of men like Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. These guys stuck their necks out. They faced persecution. They faced great trial and peril for standing up for the Word of God. And really, if you think about it, it's not just our church, it's not just the evangelical movement, but all society in many ways. Western society has been blessed immensely by the works of the Reformation. So, yes, I just want to get that in there. We should, I should say something about the Reformation on October 31st. Even though none of you guys dressed up in Halloween costumes, I was the only one. Um, we can at least celebrate the Reformation. Right? We can celebrate that and we can say something about that. Let me pray. Let me pray. And we'll get to work on Mark chapter 9, the Transfiguration, which is actually a text that I'm looking forward to preaching. Um, Not that I don't look forward to preaching certain ones, but this one, um, I'm looking forward to it. I I was blessed by my study. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for men like Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin. Flawed men, imperfect men, yes. But were they courageous? Did they take a stand? Did they see the beauty of Christ so much that they would put their lives at stake? Yes, they did, and we're thankful for that, and we are the beneficiaries of that. Thank you, Lord God, that we do have the Word of God, and we are convinced that we can celebrate the tradition that the Bible is the ultimate authority in our lives, over this church, over all things. And Lord, we're thankful that we're not governed by the tyranny of tradition or church leaders, but ultimately by your governance, by your hand, and you are good, and you are the good father. You are the good shepherd. Therefore, we want, we want to be governed by you. We gladly submit ourselves to you as children of the living God who have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. We can affirm you are the only and rightful ruler to our souls. You are the one who can shepherd us, and you will not do so tyrannically. 
You will not do so abusively. You will do so for the good of our souls and for the glory of your name. And those two things are never at odds together with each other. That your glory and our good are always in one line. So may we, Lord, decrease and may you increase in our eyes. May we worship you. May we hear your word preached to our souls. And I pray that even for my own soul. As I preach this sermon, Lord, I pray I would be the first recipient of all of this. Lord, the first audience, may it be me. So, Father, please bless us. Bless us, Lord, as we look to your word, as we surrender ourselves to your word, as we look to stake our lives upon your word. And ultimately, Lord, we desire to see you, Jesus. We desire to see your beauty. We desire to see your majesty. So please grant us sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Help us to see you. Help us to behold you. We ask it, Lord, because... We are incapable. You are the God who grants sight. So grant us sight spiritually. Grant us sight. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord God, so that we would taste and see that you are good. Because you are. You are good, God. You are good. And we trust you in that. And we want to see more of it. So please open our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. Um, do you know what a, a hologram is? Have you ever seen one of those? As I think about them, they're these silver cars. I, it brings me back to my childhood for whatever reason because I had a lot of them when I was a, a kid. These silver kind of cars and they had some kind of a faint image on them. And then if you turned it just right, if you got the reflection of light just right, if you looked at it, even just for a second, you could see the, a, that image that seemed faint. Just brilliance just power, bursting with color, and, and I love that. I love that as a kid. I can still remember at least one of the images that I had that I looked at, and you could get it. But it wasn't all the time. It was just, you know, glimpses. Just if you looked at it just right, if it got the reflection going just at the right angle. And I was fascinated by that. Now, let me confess something to you. I have never understood the transfiguration. I really haven't. And I wonder, I wonder if you're being honest with yourself. I asked, I actually polled somebody in this congregation. I won't tell you who it is. But I asked them, do you know what the transfiguration is about? Like, can you tell me what it's all about? Can you tell me what the purpose of it is? What conclusions should we draw from it? What is it really teaching us? And the answer was, no, I guess I don't. And I felt affirmed. I did. I felt affirmed. Because I thought, I'm not the only one. All right. Um, but truly, I looked at this passage. I have read the Transfiguration many times, and every single time, I would say, came away thinking, you know what? I don't really understand what this passage is about. I don't understand what this episode is really, what should I do with this exactly? So I'm glad that I was able to dig into this portion of Scripture. I'm glad I was able to study it for a sermon. I'm glad I was able to look into the commentaries and read up on it for people that are much smarter than me, who have done their research, and I can gain a better understanding of it, and hopefully it can provide you with a little bit better of an understanding of it as well. Let's look at verse 2, chapter 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured 
before them. Now, we're given a timing on this event. Do you notice that? After six days, why does Mark give us that clue? After six days, why does that matter? And, and then, after six days of what? Like, what's the starting point here? So that's the question I think we got to ask. After six days of what? And I would answer this. I'm just going to give you the answer. It's the confession of, of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? So Jesus, uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. You remember, Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? And after six days, you see, um, he does this. So Mark 8.27. Let's go ahead and read that. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So this... I think this connection here, the six-day mark, connects the transfiguration to this episode right before it. So here's the transfiguration in your sight. Here's the episode before it. Mark and Jesus clearly connect these two events. So for Mark, he's still interested in this question, who is Jesus? And I've been pressing on us over the weeks, haven't I? That Mark is very concerned about providing us with a better understanding of who Christ is, his identity. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And his disciples are coming to a better understanding of this for themselves. They don't quite get it. So the, here's our first clue. The transfiguration has something to do with revealing the identity of Christ to his disciples that don't quite really understand it yet. And you might say, well, Peter, he, you know, he passed the test, didn't he? He said the right thing. He got the answer right. Ding. You know, he filled in the right answer. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the chosen one, the anointed one. You are, the, you are God. You're the one that the Old Testament speaks of. So why does Jesus pull out his red pen on him and start marking up his paper? And here's why I would recommend to you. Peter said the right thing, but Jesus perceives that he doesn't quite have the right idea of who the Messiah actually is. So he got that right. Yes, you are the Messiah. And uh, what I think what Peter teaches us is that it is possible to be excited about Jesus and still not really embrace him for who he is. It is possible to have the right answers about Jesus, but really not fully quite get who he is. And maybe all of us, to some extent, are living in that, in that kind of conundrum, aren't we? We all affirm who Jesus is, but we don't have a, a full knowledge of who he is. But here, I think, Peter tells us, he shows us that he has quite the wrong understanding of who Jesus is in some key ways. But yes, he's affirming him as the Messiah, which he's correct about. So by the letter of the law, he's right. But I think Jesus perceives that you're excited about me, you got the right answer, but I don't think you fully understand what I'm all about, what my mission is, and what I'm here to do. So last week I was having a conversation with one of my children who's struggling in various ways with their faith. And I eventually asked them, the conversation got to this point, tell me, you know what, can you tell me what the gospel is? Just tell me what the gospel is. And by the way, 
if, uh, if you want to have a conversation with your child or with your whatever friend, ask them, you know what, tell me what the gospel is. Just tell me what your understanding of the gospel is. And really, well, I kind of let the cat out of the bag there. That's what you're going for. You're not trying to pull out your red pen and correct them. You know, this is actually one of the difficulties, by the way, of being a pastor. Your kids just automatically think you're grading them and you're just like striking them down. That's wrong. They, they feel like they have this, you know, this high standard to attain to and they can never attain to it. So I have to work with that. But I asked, I asked my child, tell me what your understanding of the gospel is because I want to make sure we're on the same page. Are we, are we talking about the same gospel here? Are we? So that's a good question. It's a very good question. Actually, challenge each other. Tell me, tell me what the, what's the gospel? How would you explain this? Or if I was an unbeliever and if I had, whatever, 30 minutes to live, how would you explain the gospel to me? This is a very, very helpful exercise for believers to do. Because, you know, even in a church like ours where we are pretty mature in our faith, we're pretty mature in our understanding, we love Bible study, it's easy to kind of feel like we've graduated from the basic elementary things when really we haven't. Maybe in some ways we've forgotten some of these basic things. Well, the point is, Jesus, I think, in a similar way is saying, you know what, who do you say that I am? And I want to make sure we're both talking about the same thing here. And after all, Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Do you remember that in 838? Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. What's Jesus getting at there? It means that we know Jesus by what he taught. We know Jesus by what he has taught. Rightly understanding what Jesus taught is key to loving him. You cannot love Jesus and hold to your own version of the gospel. And hold to your own version of biblical truth. You cannot do that. You can't do that. What you're doing then is remaking Jesus in your own image. You're not coming to him on his terms. You're essentially doing what the Reformation fought to undo. And that is, my tradition trumps the word of God. No, the word of God trumps your tradition. It trumps all tradition. The word of God is what shapes and controls who you think Jesus is. And we must come to him on his terms. And we can only love Christ if we know what he said and if we submit ourselves to what he taught. And Peter and the disciples didn't understand something. And what is it that they didn't understand? You might be asking, and I would say it was this. They didn't understand that Jesus was God who was going to suffer prior to being glorified. They didn't get this. And if you read carefully in the text, you can see what, you know, what does he mean by he has to rise again? That would imply he has to die. They didn't, they didn't put it together. They weren't getting it. So they didn't understand this. They didn't have a category that their Savior would suffer and that suffering would pave the way to glory. They didn't, they didn't think this way. It was inconceivable to them. So... The way that I've come to think about the transfiguration is this. It is a foretaste and a foretelling. It is a foretaste of the glory of Christ, current and future. And it is a foretelling of his sufferings on the cross. And it proves that suffering precedes glory. So it is a foretaste and a foretelling. 
And for the rest of the time, let's look at this passage, the transfiguration, as a foretaste and a foreshadowing of Jesus' suffering and glory. So let's look at the foretaste of Christ's glory. There's a foretaste here. And there's three different ways that I see it. In verses 2 through 8, there's at least three. There's probably many more that somebody else could point out. But I'm going to point out three. Okay, so how do we see the transfiguration as a foretaste of the glory of Christ, his glory, his majesty. Well, the first one, and perhaps the most obvious one, is that his clothes became radiant and intensely white. Look at verse 2 with me. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now look at, first of all, the first thing I want to point your attention to is how this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, Daniel 7, 14. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Do you see that? Christ is fulfilling this passage, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Christ is fulfilling this passage, this long-awaited, glorious ancient of days, the Son of Man. It's Him. He's here. There He is. Glory. And we're told that when Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white, you see, this isn't shaping up as an ad for some new killer laundry detergent that'll take out all your stains and then some. No, the disciples are seeing radiance. They're seeing and encountering the glory of God. They are seeing the outward reality of this inward beauty, the person and the role of Jesus Christ, who's so inwardly beautiful. Now, outwardly, he's radiant. This outward expression of this inward reality. And we need that, don't we? This is why God gave us creation. I thought immediately, you know, I was at Zion National Park a couple of weeks ago. And I'll tell you what. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all you have to do is drive near the park. And you're like, wow, majesty. I mean, really, you go to places like this and you're groping for words. Like, what word can I use? What word do I know that can describe what I'm seeing here? When these mountains are just towering over you and it's beautiful and you don't just say, wow, it's cool. You know, you say, that's majestic. Look at that. And God has given us creation. Last night, how many of you saw the sunset? Ben and I were driving to the errands. And I said, look at that sunset, Ben. The heavens declare the glory of God. Look at him. Display this outward manifestation of this inward reality that we would have a hard time seeing any other way. Right? So creation is one way that we see this. Now, the reality is Jesus, oh, we can, I, think, I think God sympathizes. Jesus sympathizes with his disciples at this point. And he realizes, you know what? They have a hard time seeing the majesty. It didn't appear like Jesus was majestic. How many of you think, uh, you know, if I could only be there and see Jesus, you know what? You may not have seen much. You may look at him and just be like, ah, oh, not much. It's not much. You know, it's like a hologram without the brilliance. 
the transfiguration, all of a sudden is that second where, whoa, the light just hit it right. Wow, wow. Can you see that? And this is the battle of the Christian faith, brothers and sisters. We see Jesus like a hologram. Why do you struggle to read the Bible and memorize Scripture and pray? You know why? Because you don't see majesty. I don't see majesty. And the transfiguration tells us and it sympathizes with us that there are variations in how we see Christ. Is it or not? How many of us can say, yeah, I see Jesus at a level 10 every day. Every moment of every day. It's just boom, just notched up there. Wow, sometimes 11. No, I've seen Jesus at 10 before. And I've walked through valleys where it's at 1. And everything in between. So... There's hope. There's this God who comes to us and he says, you know what, I understand. And Jesus shows up and he says, here's majesty. Here's what I'm really all about. And here's a little bit of a foretaste of what you will see. You know what, when we have our glorified bodies on the new earth, we will see Christ at 10 every day. Are you guys excited about that? Are you excited about that? I'm excited about that. I'm excited for the day when we will see Christ at level 10 every single day. And Peter and the other disciples, James and John, they see him at 10. And God is so gracious to reveal little glimpses of this is the beauty, this is the majesty of who I am. And we will one day have him shining bright and brilliant, constantly majestic before our eyes. Not the veil of sin, not the veil of all kinds of corruption that cloud our understanding with our earthly limitations. And this episode does connect us to the last one. When we become convinced of the majesty of Christ, there is nothing that we can gain in this world that can match the reward of having him throughout eternity. And isn't God so gracious to do this? Last week, we hear this call. If you love your life, you'll lose it, right? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus reasons with us. And really, if you think about it, suffering for Christ makes no sense if he isn't beautiful. But because he is, and he shows us in the very next verse, I am beautiful, I far surpass anything that this world could offer you. And when we see him, when his disciples see him, just a glimpse of his glory, it all makes sense. Yes, okay, there is no thing that I can give in exchange for my soul, in exchange for seeing this beauty forevermore on the new earth. There's nothing. There's nothing that this world could offer that would outweigh that. So it's brilliant. You see this? It's brilliant. You have to understand the transfiguration in connection with what Jesus just taught his disciples about losing your life and gaining it, about exchanging things for your soul. God is so gracious to shepherd us this way. Okay, number two. How do we see the glory of Christ? We see that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses and Elijah. Verse four. Verse four. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. 
Now, what do Moses and Elijah have in common? Why did these guys show up on this mountain with Jesus? Well, here's what we can say. I mean, there's actually, you know what? The first thing I thought of when I studied this passage is, wow, there's so much stuff in this passage that we could trace out with the Old Testament and so on. But here's how I can condense it for our sake tonight. Both of them were deliverers of God's people. They delivered God's people. And they had a significant mountain ministry. And they're on a mountain. So there's these connections there. The transfiguration also took place on a mountain. And it tells us that Jesus is in the long line of deliverers of God's people. And Jesus not only superior to the others, he is the fulfillment of the lineage. Let's look at verse 8 together. Look at verse 8 with me, if you would. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Isn't that interesting? All of a sudden, boom, they're gone. And I think there's several things we could say about that, but let me point you to this one. That Jesus is the fulfillment and that Jesus is greater. He is the one that they have been pointing to and all of a sudden, you know what? They're kind of obsolete. They're not needed anymore. Jesus is the real deliverer. He is the real one that these men were pointing to in the Old Testament. He's here. They don't need to be here anymore. They're gone. Don't you see you have Jesus now? I think that's the point of verse 8. They're all of a sudden alone with Jesus so as to say, Christ is greater. And he's the only one. Okay, so Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. His clothes became radiant, outwardly majestic of his inward reality. And then number three, I will say this. Jesus is the dwelling of God. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. Verse five. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So let's talk about clouds in verse 7 and 8. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice uh, came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now notice the connection from here to to Moses in the book of Exodus. So I'm going to read a passage out of Exodus. I think I put it up there. Exodus 24, 15, and 16. You will see the connection. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So you see that connection there. The connection between God meeting his people, God delivering his people, God's presence dwelling with his people. Uh, you know, and there's this Exodus theme going on. Why does Peter want to make three tents? I think that's a question that we should ask and wrestle with. Why does he say, let's make three tents? Now, tents are related to dwelling, so it kind of makes some sense there. We're talking about the presence of God. The cloud representing the presence of God, God being with his people. But let me say this. I'm going to give two answers, essentially. I think perhaps Peter wants to protect himself and to preserve. He wants to preserve and to protect. Okay? So those are the two things that I think are going on here. 
what do I mean by he wants to preserve? Well, <laughs> I mean, he's in the presence of Jesus. I mean, have you ever been in a, in a moment that you just don't want to end? That you want to last forever and you wish you could, you could make it last forever? I think Peter's here. He's on this mountaintop experience. He's in the presence of Christ. He's, he's witnessing glory. You know what? Let's, let's stay the night. Take off your coat. Make yourself at home. Let's, let's make this last. Let's make a tent. And I think what Peter was realizing is that Jesus is the manifestation of the presence of God. No need to make a tent. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that we're learning here. And what can I say about the protection piece? Well, a tent also protects. A tent protects. And what do they need to be protected from? Well, it does say, you notice that? That they were terrified. You guys, have, I mean, I don't know what type of person you are. When you don't know what to say, some people just don't say anything. And some people just start talking. I don't know which one you are. Peter must have been a talker. I don't know what to say. I'm just going to start talking. Let's make tents. I know. I'm scared. Why would he be scared? Why would they be terrified? Well, they are in the presence of Christ. They are witnessing the glory of Christ. And Peter is terrified in the presence of a holy God because he knows, I'm a sinner. We're sinners. We have no business being in the presence of Christ. And Moses, connect back to Moses' ministry. You guys remember what happened when he encountered God? Moses met God on this hill and he was hid in the cleft of the rock. God said to him, you cannot see my face and live for no man shall see me and live. That's serious. Why, why would that be true? Because the glory of God is so effulgent that a sinner in his presence would be incinerated. And this is how we see the glory of the presence of God. This is how we see the glory of the gospel. I don't want you guys to miss this. This is how we see the gospel unfolding before our very eyes. Because no sinner has the right to be in the presence of God. Much less look at the face of Jesus. They were looking at the face of Jesus. Do you realize that? What right do they have? They have no right. God covered Moses with his hand because he couldn't see his face. But do you realize the disciples look right into the face of Jesus because they are covered with his blood? Now, of course, Jesus had not shed his blood yet. But he paves, this story paves the way to the cross. He points his way to the cross. And even before it happened, God was saying, I have a way of covering you. The way that you have the right to be in my presence. You know, this is Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy, God is the one who shed his blood so that sinners could enter the presence of God and not be totally incinerated. And not be totally consumed. And that is our reality, brothers and sisters. We have no right. You have no right whatsoever to be in the presence of God and to behold his majesty. Because you are sinful. And holiness cannot dwell with sin. It can't happen. And there's nothing you can do that would lend yourself that God would say, well, okay, you had a pretty good week. You did the dishes every day. All right, you can see just a, gl a glimpse. 
No, there's nothing that anybody can do or ever has done or will ever do that would lend themselves to God that he would say, okay, fine, you can enter in. The only thing that has been done and could ever be done and will ever be done is that Jesus shed his blood and his blood covers us now. He renews us and he allows us entryway into his presence. This is the beauty of the gospel, brothers and sisters. Because of the gospel, we can have presence with God and God can dwell with us. And we can see and behold his beauty. Do you realize that is not a right that is given to you? That is a tremendous privilege, and it's bought with the life of Christ. To see and behold his beauty. To see his glory shining forward. And you know what? We don't have God in the tent anymore. We don't have to set up a tent. We don't have to set up a temple. We don't have to set up the tabernacle or the Holy of Holies for God to dwell there. We don't even have to show up here to encounter the presence of God. Because Christ shed his blood, we can have presence and fellowship with God. And God's presence can be with us wherever we go because of the Holy Spirit. That's the glory of the gospel. So that is the foretaste of the transfiguration. Let's talk about the foretelling here really quickly. It is a foretaste now of his glory. It's a foretaste of what is to come. But there's also a foretelling. The transfiguration tells us forth, I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to rise again. And by which his disciples were utterly baffled. They were confused by that. And perhaps it's because his disciples' understanding of Jesus was still shaped by, to some extent, a political figure in the line of David who would conquer his enemies. Now, Jesus was going to conquer his enemies, but not in the way that they ever anticipated or even wanted. They wanted somebody to kind of come in and kick butt and take names, to really let the Romans have it, to put them in their place. And that's not what Jesus was going to do at all. Jesus was going to come in as the sacrificial servant, the lamb that was going to go to the slaughter. He was going to conquer and pave the way of glory through suffering. And now they had to embrace that their champion was going to die. And they had to come to grips with the fact that suffering preceded glory. And how do we see this? Well, let's look at 9 through 13. Let's read this. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one that they, uh, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Do you see their confusion? And they asked him, Why do scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? There's another clue. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So let me break this down real quick. Again, this is an area that we could spend a lot of time on, do a Sunday school class on. But one of the easiest ways to make sense of Moses and Elijah is that Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. Now, who was the last great prophet that the Old Testament even tells us of 
that the Old Testament says is going to come in the spirit of Elijah. It says here, Malachi 4, 5, one of the last verses in the Old Testament says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Before the day of Christ, I'm going to send you Elijah. So there's an expectation in this day that Elijah was going to make a return. And Jesus tells them, Elijah has come. Who's he talking about there? Does anybody know? He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Elijah. And I don't know exactly why the Bible does it this way, but John the Baptist is kind of the return in the spirit of Elijah. He's the fulfillment. He's the last great prophet. He closes up that canon and then paves the way to Christ. So Elijah has come in John the Baptist, and what does Jesus say of them? They did to them whatever they pleased. In other words, Elijah suffered in the ministry, and John the Baptist, he also suffered for preaching a gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins. He was decapitated. So just like that, Jesus, he was in the line of deliverers. Just like Jesus was in the line of deliverers, he's in the line of great sufferers as well. He's in the line of those who did ministry faithfully and had their heads chopped off, both literally and figuratively. And he says, essentially, I'm here to deliver, and I'm also here in their line to suffer. I'm in their line to deliver, I'm in their line to suffer. And if you are my followers, what he says to them, you will be too. And that's what he's telling them. And I think that's what they're coming to grips with. That if this is true for Jesus, it must be true for me too. If John the Baptist will suffer, if Jesus will suffer, then I guess that means I will have to too. So it wasn't just Jesus' role and his identity, it was also now their identity as well that they're coming to embrace. And interestingly enough, the transfiguration, here's one last thing I will say about it. It's at the, basically the halfway point of the book of Mark. By the way, congratulations, we made it halfway through. We're almost basically partway, halfway there, right? And it's key that it is halfway because the first half of the book of Mark focuses on the deeds of Christ, all the different things that prove he is God. And what, what are we going to see in the last half? We're going to see his journey to the cross. We're going to see that he is God that goes to the cross and suffers and dies. He is the God-man, and his role in his ministry is to suffer and die as God. And uh, really, the transfiguration is kind of the door that swings in that direction. Who do you say that I am? I am God, and I'm God who will suffer. I'm God who will be crucified and be raised again. And this is something that we get. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah, I know that. But his disciples didn't. And, and it begs the question, what does this mean for us? And I really did. I wrestled with this. In fact, I went hunting, and I learned, I'm learning how to hunt, and I'm learning that part of learning how to hunt is learning how to pray. Because when you are just standing there waiting for a deer, there's not much else you can do. You can't really play with your phone because wouldn't it be something if there you were like playing on your phone and there's a deer right there to shoot? That would be silly. So there's not much to do when you hunt except maybe I'll talk to God. <laughs> so there I am talking to God, praying that a deer would come so I could shoot it dead. <laughs> and then eat it. But then after I prayed about that, I started talking to him about, what does this mean? 
What does this passage mean? And really, I came to realize that the transfiguration is God's, his gracious way of coming to us, coming to me and saying, you know what? I understand that in this life, you're not going to get Christ at level 10 all the time. I understand that. And it's almost the question of, are you willing to press on on a diet of glimpses? Have you seen enough of Christ to say, I know he's beautiful. I know he's majestic. And I know even if I just have these glimpses, it's worth suffering and dying for. It's worth living for. And it's worth pursuing more glimpses. We shouldn't have a fatalistic idea about this. Oh, you know what? God will show up and he'll show himself off to me whenever he so chooses. But no, we must pursue that. Even though we know we will not see Christ at level 10 all the time, will you go out of your way? Will you, will you witness creation and, say, and train yourself to say the heavens declare the glory of God? God is beautiful. Let everything else just fade away for just a few moments and worship the God who gave you that sunset. That's one way that we can gain glimpses It's good to take trips. It's good to do retreats. It's good to get away and have mountaintop experiences. It is. It's good to do life with one another. It's good to have fellowship with one another and study the Bible with one another because more realistically, you are going to see more of the beauty of Christ as you read the Bible, not by yourself, but with others. You will. I know we make a big deal about personal quiet times with God, but you know what? You need other people in your life to read Scripture with, to meditate on it, because you'll get more out of it. I believe that. You'll get more. But still read the Bible on your own, too, and meditate on it. So pursue seeing more glimpses of the beauty of Christ, but also realize, you know what? It's not going to be level 10 all the time. I remember Fun Stripes gum when I was a kid. I thought about this. Do you guys remember Fun Stripes gum? Have any of you? They had the zebra stripes with all the different colors. And I I remember this particular gum had the most brilliant taste. I mean, just, wow, an explosion in your mouth. And then I realized, you know what? Almost from one second to another, it just goes flat, nothing. Just a short little time. In fact, it it was so pronounced that I got my stopwatch out as a kid Pop the gum, how many seconds? And it was 17. At 17 seconds, boom, no more taste. It was great. It was was wonderful. You know what? That 17 seconds, that was the transfigured gum. It was the majestic taste of the explosion in my mouth. And then after that, that just kind of, that was like life at normal, where we struggle to see the beauty of who Christ really is. You know? Coming to expect that. So will we refrain from giving up on God knowing that we may only get glimpses and not the full-on display all the time? Life is marred by sin, so we don't see the beauty of Christ or the goodness of God, but you have seen enough to trust that it is there. Will you exercise faith like that? You know what? I have seen the beauty of the Lord And here's how faith looks, brothers and sisters. It looks like this. I will pursue seeing more of it. And if I don't get it the same way that I want all the time, I will cling to that by faith, knowing that was real. And I want more, and I look forward to the day when I will have it in full.
And I think that's, that's the life of faith for us. Will you have faith? Or will you grow bitter? You know what? I'm not seeing anything. I'm not, I, I remember when I had it better over there and so on and so forth. I'm giving up on God. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on God for that. So will you cling to the glimpses? Be content to let them get you by until you see it fully. And can you trust that those glimpses are enough to sustain suffering for Christ? That what you have experienced, what you have tasted in Christ is actually worth more than anything this world could offer you. And can you embrace your identity as a disciple who will also walk the road of the cross in one way or the other? If you faithfully follow Jesus, you may probably certainly will come under opposition. You will be opposed for your faith. Do you believe do you believe that Jesus is beautiful enough to endure that opposition? And do you believe that Jesus is with you through it and he will give you the glimpses along the way that you need? So those are some things that we can ask of ourselves. Those are some things that we can challenge ourselves with and pursue. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the transfiguration. I know I was helped by the study and I pray that these people were as well. So go before us, I ask in Jesus' name. Help us to see your beauty. We pray, Lord God, that we wouldn't just cling to what we have seen, but that we would press in more. Help us to identify, Lord God, that our biggest need is to see you and to see you more, to see your beauty, to see your majesty. Lord, our lives are identified by that. Really, our lives should be consumed in that, to see and behold Christ in all of his splendor and all of his majesty. So please go before us. Please um, teach us and help us to do with these things according to what is according to your good pleasure. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.